On January 31st, Mickey will be leaving. So long. Sleeping Beauty will go back to sleep. <laughs> and Mowgli will go back to the jungle. I want to stay here with you. Goodbye. Because on January 31st, Disney will stop selling the Jungle Book, Sleeping Beauty, and Fun and Fancy Free. So before they go back into the Disney vault for years to come, hurry. <laughs> hurry. Don't miss your chance to own these magical Disney videos before they disappear. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the I Am Cannabis Sativa podcast. I'm your host, Dan Scotland. If you're currently a medical marijuana patient and want to tell your story and be featured on the podcast, feel free to email me at IamCannabisSativa at gmail.com. Feel free to hit me up on Instagram at IamCannabisSativa. Feel free to check out our official Twitter account at ICSativaPod. You can also find and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Anchor FM, Overcast, Radio Public, TuneIn, Stitcher, and the Google Play Music Store. Please rate and review us on iTunes, as rating and reviewing us will bump up the pod on their algorithm and put this project in front of even more eyeballs. If you like what we are doing, please become a Patreon supporter of the podcast and support us. Supporting us helps us keep the lights on, pay rent, pay for hosting, equipment, and travel. You can do this by going to www.anchor.fm slash Podcast slash support. You can also support me on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash podcast. You can support this podcast for as little as $1 a month. We also have a $5 tier if you are feeling extra generous. Howdy, y'all. Dan Scotland here, joining you from Legal Grass, Massachusetts, the heartland of America. So I have another episode from The Vault for you guys. Um, this is from the 2017 um, CWCBE. Um, it's a panel about diversity in cannabis. It's, um, it's about an hour long or so, but I really think you'll get a lot out of it. And um, as always, um, I'm, I will always want to thank the people that support the show. Um, again, I, I don't know if I want to be doing these at the beginning or the end, but, um, shout out to Reefer Revolution for being Patreons of this, of the show. Any, any bit helps. Um, we put that money towards, towards, um, upkeep of the website, um, upkeep of the podcast and, um, reinvesting back into the podcast and any little bit helps. Um, you can become a Patreon by going to www.patreon.com slash I see Sativa podcast and you can click the become a Patreon button to support us. Um, shout out to, uh, Joey One Love for donating to the PayPal. Again, we have a PayPal link. Um, and, um, we're going to put that in the description as well. So without further ado, we'll get to the episode. Uh, a conversation about bridging gaps and overcoming the historical biases 
to achieve diversity in cannabis. Um, we have a fantastic panel today. Um, really quickly, just how the session will go. I try to keep the time. You know, sometimes we're talking about stuff and it's hard, but luckily we're the last session, so we won't get kicked out like right, right way. But um, do a quick introduction. Like I said, I have an amazing panel, so I love the theatrics in me. I love to do the introductions because everybody's doing something fabulous. And then um, we'll have the panel discussion for a half an hour. We're going to take a look at past, present, and future, and then open we'll up to the floor for Q and A, and then we'll conclude. We have a room one ten where we can meet and, and greet if you're interested, um, or or if they don't kick us out to the meet and greet here. Um, so that being said. I'm going to just uh, really quickly, I'm Nishita, I'm the panel moderator, uh, and really conceptually as a consultant, I came up with this series because I, I'm obviously a woman of color, I'm from originally from Brooklyn, New York, grew up in the war on drugs, and uh, while I definitely am interested in the business aspect, I'm definitely really focused on the diversity and how we achieve that. Um, and so as a strategist, I've been looking from the outside in on how do we develop the conversation, share the opportunities, but also learn some of the historical context that leads us here. I don't know if it's the Princeton University in me, but I feel like history often can repeat itself if we don't actually know it, um, if we don't know the truth behind it, and some of that will be what we discuss here. I can be found on Instagram or Twitter as a cannabis CEO. Um, so, sorry, moving to the next, it looks like Department of Defense contractor serving in both Iraq and Afghanistan, Leo has worked for multiple companies. 
having had three battle buddies attempt suicide and two being successful, uh, he really takes to uh, heart the issue of 22 veteran suicides per day. Um, he finds it totally unacceptable, and as a result, uh, his advocacy has seen him testify in the New Jersey State Senate Committee um, to have post-traumatic stress disorder added to the New Jersey Medical Marijuana Program, which is a big deal. Um, since then, Leo has been extremely busy. He serves as the New Jersey Chapter President for Minorities for Medical Marijuana, is a subcommittee chair of Minorities with the New Jersey Cannabis Association, partnering with organizations like Coalition Medical Marijuana, New Jersey, Drug Policy Alliance, uh, ACLU, I Deserve Canada, Cannabis Cultural Association, and We for Warriors in Trenton. He is also the co-founder of the New Jersey Cannabis Commission with the mission to be a vessel by which the industry works through in the state of New Jersey. Please join me in welcoming Leo. Next up, I would like to introduce Ms. Rosalind, aka Sister Roz. <laughs> Sister Roz McCarthy is a proud Florida State University graduate at Marketing, Business Development, and Social Media Strategist, Printer, and Speaker located in Orlando, Florida. With over 22 years of experience, Roz is a constant creator of branding campaigns and business development strategies. A direct and target marketing consultant who assists marketing plans, copywriting, and designing top pulling mailings, ads, catalogs, and basically she gets your business right. Okay. Um, she consults businesses on startups and nonprofits, news development, government contracting. Um, as the founder and CEO of Minorities for Medical Marijuana, she is responsible for the organization's day-to-day -day operation and is the chief strategist involved in developing advocacy, education, and marketing campaigns to promote awareness, information, and education about the efficacy of medical marijuana. Um, Minorities for Medical Marijuana is a membership-based organization, and she's really working hard to make sure people of color have a true quantifiable opportunity in the space. Please, please join me in welcoming Rosalind. Um, please join me in welcoming Ms. Sonia Espinosa. Uh, prior to graduating with Harvard class of 
when I was coming of age, Ronald Reagan doubled down on the war on drugs that had been started by Richard Nixon in 1971. Drugs were bad, fried your brain. And drug dealers were monsters, the sole reason neighborhoods and major cities were failing. No one wanted to talk about Reaganomics and the ending of social safety nets, the defunding of schools and the loss of jobs in cities across America. Young men like me who hustled became the sole villain and drug addicts lacked moral fortitude. In the 1990s, incarceration rates in the U.S. blew up. Today we imprison more people than any other country in the world. China, Russia, Iran, Cuba. All countries we consider autocratic and repressive. Yeah, more than them. Judges' hands were tied by tough-on-crime laws and they were forced to hand out mandatory life sentences for simple possession and low-level drug sales. My home state of New York started this with Rockefeller laws. Then the feds made distinctions between people who sold powder cocaine and crack cocaine even though they were the same drug. Only difference is how you take it. And even though white people used and sold crack more than black people, somehow it was black people who went to prison. The media ignored actual data to this day. Crack is still talked about as a black problem. The NYPD raided our Brooklyn neighborhoods while Manhattan bankers openly used coke with impunity. The war on drugs exploded the U.S. prison population disproportionately locking away black and Latinos. Our prison population grew more than 900%. When the war on drugs began in 1971, our prison population was 200,000. Today it is over 2 million. Long after the crack era ended, we continued our war on drugs. There were more than 1.5 million drug arrests in 2014. More than 80% were for possession only. Almost half were for marijuana. People are finally talking about treating addiction to harder drugs as a health crisis. But there's no compassionate language about drug dealers. Unless, of course, we're talking about places like Colorado, whose state economy got a huge boost by the above-ground marijuana industry. A few states south in Louisiana is still handing out mandatory sentences for people who sell weed. Despite a boom in its celebrated 50 billion legal marijuana industry, most states still disproportionately hand out mandatory sentences to black and Latinos with drug cases. If you're entrepreneurial and live in one of the many states that are passing legalized laws, you may still face barriers participating in the above ground economy. Venture capitalists migrate to these states to open multi-billion dollar operations, but former felons can't open a dispensary. Lots of times those felonies were drug charges, caught by poor people who sold drugs for a living, but are now prohibited from participating in one of the fastest growing economies. Got it? In states like New York, where holding marijuana is no longer grounds for arrest, police issue possession citations in black and Latino neighborhoods at a far higher rate than other neighborhoods. Kids in Crown Heights are constantly stopped and ticketed for trees. Kids at dorms in Columbia, where rates of marijuana use are equal to or worse than those in the hood, are never targeted or ticketed. Rates of drug use are as high as they were when Nixon declared the so-called war in 1971. 45 years later, it's time to rethink our policies and laws. The war on drugs is an epic fail.
And so I definitely wanted to kick off the conversation um, first by kind of getting a little bit more information about our panelists, particularly those of us who grew up during this time period. And so I'm gonna first build the conversation with Roz. Um, in terms of, again, like I said, everything I just saw when I first saw it, it really like, makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up because it resonates so well with the drawing. But having grown up in the war on drugs and after watching this video, uh, tell me a little bit more about that leftover bias as it's portrayed in the video and how that impacted your perception of cannabis. Um, and then do so, share us a little bit of, about your story um, and, and how that led to minorities with medical marijuana. Well, um, I agree. Um, the portrayal of what you see in that video, um, how many of you were familiar with those numbers? And you're familiar with the numbers, the disproportionality in regards to arrest, um, where it just, it doesn't make sense. When you come from those communities, for me, when I started the organization, it, it was twofold. I was thinking about the medical aspect, and that's a whole other conversation about healthcare disparity in our communities, and that's a whole other conversation, because we know the plant is good, right? And we know that it can create great things for and, and can help. Um, I, I immediately thought about our brown brothers and sisters who have been incarcerated and how how can it now be something that's so legal and it's going to be so accepted, but you have individuals who are either still in prison or who are out, but have something as minor as a possession charge, and now they're not able to get a job, haven't been able to get a job for for years. They have to, you know, there's things in Florida called ban the box, where there's legislation about, you know, again, um, you know, taking, where you don't have to uh, articulate if you've been arrested before. So some of these things were resonating in my mind. I'm thinking, okay, there is an implicit bias, and I'm just sorry, it is. How do I start a conversation, in a candid conversation, do you guys realize, had it not been for organizations and folks like Tashida and other organizations, and organizations like M4MM, if we didn't push the envelope to ask to be able to talk to Cannabis, um, um, cannabis World Business Expo, and I, I can't think of the whole entire name, but these conversations wouldn't even be held. I think sometimes we leave things and we don't have the conversation and we don't address it head, head on, um, that we pretend it didn't happen. And that was one of, like, I guess for me, one of the, the other things that really provoked me and made me say, okay, I gotta create something that is really gonna address the diversity issue in cannabis and how do we look at it from a social aspect, a medical aspect, an educational aspect, and a business aspect. And it goes on from there. Do you, um, or do you have a past with cannabis yourself? I do not. Um, my, you know, I grew up with a mother who was a UPS uh, truck driver for 26 years. Um, she passed away 12 years ago from breast cancer, was diagnosed one year, she was gone the next year. But what she instilled in me was, you go to school, you get your education, you stay away from drugs. Like, you know, it was taboo, it was stigma. My father had glaucoma. My mother used to always say, well, you know what? All he needs to do is smoke a joint. That was not even an option. So for me, it wasn't, you know, the proverbial about, you know, you know, um, you know, the, the connotation about African-Americans being lazy and all we want to do is, you know, the stereotypical thing that you would see as to why I may want to start an organization like this, that was not why I started it. Really, to be honest with you, I was a businesswoman that looked at the business side of it. I'm a healthcare professional in management where I worked for pharma for eight years. I worked for hospice for another seven years. So I looked at the healthcare disparity. And then also, I just had compassion for the people in my community. My, my Uncle Joe's, and I mean, we all know these folks. 
that were targeted. And I didn't realize it. We used to have, I, I grew up in Oviedo, which is out in the country in Florida. And we used to have, we would sit outside and we would laugh about it, but now we would have the Duke boys. You know what the Duke boys are? The Duke boys would come around and they would come and they would raid houses in our community and they would have covers over their head and they would raid drug houses, supposedly. And there were many times they would raid houses, raid houses that were not drug houses, but they were told it was. And so that, in our mind, we would get word around in our community because it was a little small country town in Florida, in Orlando, where we had chickens that walked across the street. So we had like these little, I mean, some country, real country. Um, but we would have folks called the Duke Boys that would come. And that was like, I don't know if it, I wouldn't say entertainment, but that was what I realized. I thought that that's all, you know, our folks were just getting locked up because they were just drug dealers and that they were they were raping and pillaging our community. And so, I mean, those were things that resonated for me and made me say, you know what, can I create something that has something meaning to it, that we can have some substantive dialogue, that we can make some moves and move out of the shadows of stereotypical of what people think, and let's move into economic development, which leads to workforce development. Let's decrim, decriminalize. Let's create opportunity. Let's career track for those that are interested. Let's have some dialogue. <clears throat> have a dialogue with this young man earlier today. He was like, Ross, I don't know where my fit is, but I know there's a fit for me. And I don't want him for folks to have the connotation, African-American male, six foot one, he's just want to be a smoker. No, he doesn't. He wants to be in the industry. How can I help him get in the industry? Thank you, Ross. Um, moving the conversation to Kamani, Sure, I'm originally from Brooklyn, um, and that definitely is what I saw growing up. I grew up in East New York and Crown Heights, so Crown Heights is gentrifying like crazy now. And I remember there used to be like crack aisles on the floor growing up, and that's why my mom and my dad were like, oh, we gotta get you out this neighborhood. Same with East New York. Um, you know, my mom still lives in the project, so just seeing that mentality of, of drug dealing and, you know, pissy floors. Um, just still wasn't always in my thoughts every day. And um, specifically coming up as a millennial, like the reason why I got serious about this industry was the lack of diversity and going. So in New York City, it's not legal. They have medicinal, but it's very limited. And they would have meetups. So like there was High and Y, there's um, like Cannabis and Hemp Association. Um, there's all these little groups that are sort of like pop um, in New York City. And I was just hungry because I, I knew I wanted to be in this space. Um, and I would go to these meetups and I would always be like dis disheartened because I would be like one of like two or three black people or diverse people in general. Um, and I was like, I know this is a huge issue because when I go back to Brooklyn, like all my homies smoke, like everyone consumes. I smoke with my mom, like that's like, my mom was like, you should smoke inside, but I don't want you to get arrested. Like that's, <laughs> like that's how we started smoking together. She's like, I don't want you to jump on the train. And I used to go to high school in Long Island. She's like, I don't want you to like, deal with Long Island cops and get arrested. So just, just smoke like when you're around me. So um, just seeing that growing up and the, just the stigma and uh, we don't want to get arrested. So that's why we, we might not even come out. Like he, he, damn, he told me he came from like, the, 
you, you just did a tour as a vet. And I'm thinking in my head, you're like, oh, you just came home. Like, what'd you do? Like, why'd you go to jail? And you're like, no, I was a vet. And I'm just like, oh man, my mentality has been like changed because I can reflect like, you tell me I just came home and I don't think you just came from jail. So like, we, it's just, they've like brainwashed our people to, to think we are criminals. And like, it, that's a hard thing for us to even, like, I, like, I didn't even want to jump in at first. I was like, I don't, I don't want to get arrested. I don't want people to even think I'm associated with something like this. I do this, but like at home. And then it just, it's, it's bigger than cannabis. It's bigger than money. It's like we're changing laws and societal views and, and talking about what this country was built on before like, this industry even existed. So not even just from Brooklyn, New York, like in general, like how laws were made and how people were treated in this country since the slave, slavery days. So it's just it's such a, as a millennial, it, it really changed my mind when I, when I started working on this campaign and changed the law. And now we're, we're not even dealing with the law anymore. We're dealing with stigma and views of what they think someone is or what something is. And jumping over that has been like the craziest thing. So it, it's been a, a trip for sure. No, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. I definitely have been spending a lot of time just again, like I have a consultant trying to figure out, okay, how do we fix this? What are ways that as new people come into the industry, how do we teach brands that are new businesses how to overcome some of that? And I think it's the education piece, certainly, um, and these type of panels. Um, what you have here is just a framework that I've been playing with. It will continue to be built upon. The last time I presented, I had nothing on it except equity, policy, and education. And it's sort of, in my mind as a consultant, what I'm seeing as the pillars within the industry and places that we really can impact, um, starting with education as really the foundation, um, followed by, obviously, the need to change in policy. Intoxicant, and this is a detoxifier. It's very different molecularly um, in terms of what's happening to your body. And then finally, we'll end things with um, Ross kind of talking about some of the federal legalization. Is it true or not? It's kind of where we are right now. Are we really thinking that it's going to be legal? So, really quickly, um, oftentimes Latinos get erroneously just lumped in. Like, we, we've said it multiple times, like I said, like it's a BH. Um, but I'm actually now, again, doing more research for this panel. I'm starting to see that in some states, the situation disparities are actually worse. Um, in California, um, it is a lot higher rate. Um, Arizona, similarly. Um, and I, I would say in Florida, too. Yeah, so it is one of those things where I feel like because we're lumping, we're missing like almost like a real sore or canker, if you will, that's kind of festering. And there's some of that external pressure from just the nuances of the Latino community um, in terms of getting education to them, whether it's English as a second language. I just feel like we're missing it. So I just wanted to, you know, give you a chance to share some of those biases that you feel like are specific to the community and what are some of the ideas you have in terms of how we overcome it. Yeah, um, so I actually started working on marijuana when I was in college. I dedicated a lot of my time to studying undocumented populations, illegal aliens, and it's through and how they function in society. And you know, how is it that uh, this group of people that supposedly doesn't pay taxes um, and doesn't have a real social security number, how are they still able to function in our society and actually contribute um, more than they get in return? Because they actually do pay taxes and they don't get any medical services or any government aid. Um, but it's through illegal aliens 
um, undocumented immigrants that I actually realized that cannabis and illegal, illegal immigrants are very, very similar um, for two reasons. They're both commodities and they both have a very long history of being stigmatized. While one becomes legal, weed, the other one remains illegal. And why is that? Well, the reason is there's a direct benefit to marijuana. There's a direct benefit when you consume it. There's a direct benefit when you're part of the industry and you're making money from it. There is not an indirect benefit from illegal immigrants. If anything, you don't want to know that your strawberries were picked for $6 an hour by a 12-year-old kid. And so it's this disconnection of like seed to sale that enables, so legality is allowed through power. When there is enough power, legality shifts. And you know, the reason I feel like we see a higher arrest in California and Arizona is because there are a lot of these vulnerable populations that can't rely on you know, citizenship to say, hey, I am a member of this community. Like, protect me, I'm working. Um, and so when I initially started working with with marijuana and really uh, becoming part of this you know, industry, my parents looked at me like I was crazy. They said, what? Like, this is what you went to Harvard for so that you can become a chapel? Uh, and I was like, Perspective. 
why the diversity piece is really strong for me is even though I'm white and obviously everyone's experienced the way they, they experience discrimination or racism is different and unique to themselves, I was brought up Jewish. So I lived in an area outside of California that was really like a very urban situation. And I experienced prejudice it, just from my religious beliefs at that time. Mm -hmm. And I went through, you know, I mean, like I said, everyone's different, but I had a lot of similarities. Right. So that's, that's why it's so important to me for, for diversity. And it's me being a previous cannabis dispensary or multiple dispensaries. And now we have a business right here where, like what you were saying, we do, we do build outs. We uh, advocate, we have a lawyer as a partner, and many other aspects of our business, but now that's a big piece for me, because for my clients, when we take on clients to build out these dispensaries, these growth facilities, these processing facilities, the thing that I preach, because we offer like an all-inclusive thing, the thing I preach is, great, you're gonna hire us for our HR, let's bring in diversity, let's build your workplace of people of, of rainbow, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Everyone, right? Gay and lesbian, Hispanic, Afro-American, Asian. Let's, let's, let's build a cohesive workplace and open it to everybody. So that's why it's kind of important to me. And I have a lot of aspects after offline that I can help all you guys out. Yeah. Well, and I definitely, I think it's creating a culture. Um, one thing I tell people all the time is, like in Florida, they go, what was the intention of the legislation that you wrote, Roz? And I said, the intention was not putting lipstick on a pig. I don't want the whole, like, okay, well, let me write this. And I got two, I got two Hispanics, and I got one black. <laughs> <laughs> we had to do that. Right, right. It's, it's not that. You know, again, when you come from my corporate background and coming from corporations, one thing that we're focused on as an organization, we're going to try to do a corporate social responsibility program that focuses on diversity. Because if you can, my background coming from Bristol Myers, some of the, the, the big farmers, what they realized was with, with diversity, it was something that was a part of the culture, that, that was a part of, it starts at the top and goes down. It can't start at the middle, it can't be here, it can't be something that you kind of make someone go. You have to go here and then open yourself up to the possibilities of understanding what does that really mean. So I've had someone approach me about writing a diversity plan for a application in Florida. They were like, yeah, I wrote one in Pennsylvania. I said, what was your score? And they were like, 40. And we had SOPs and we had KPIs. I said, that's why you got a 40. I said, for diversity, it's not about having KPI meaning key performance and, and improvement. It's not about SOPs. It's about humanistic issues. How do you look at humanistic side of programming, of, of, of responsibility, of understanding you know, do you know, understand what career tracking means? Do you understand when it when it when it um, it talks about um, wanting to be able to um, like uh, what was one of my other areas? Um, when it, what the healthcare disparity and health awareness and education and how do you make that a priority? And it's a, something that's a part of you. So I think one thing I'll know who who was here for Reverend Sharpton with his keynote. Keynote Reverend Sharpton. If you guys missed it. One thing he said that I thought was amazing, he said white, brown, black, whatever, is all in our collective interest for this industry, because federally, we're still fighting a battle. We have the opportunity right now, do you know we are in the dot-com of, like, I'm like so excited, yeah. because we have the potential, it's in all of our best interest to work together. It is in all of our best interest. So for, I want you to go back and go, hey, I need to be connected with or paired with one of these minority groups, or I need to be working with some diversity piece of it all, or I need to be understanding what your issue is, because if we join force together, one, it's a paradigm shift from when there was the dot, when it's a real estate boom, 
Who was making the money? Sure wasn't us. When it was the dot-com boom, who was making the money? It wasn't us. When it was, when it was the air boom, we was mad at it. We were making it. We have an opportunity right now, and that's what that was my, my that was my takeaway from Reverend Sharpton. He said it's all in our best interest to figure out how do we work together, how do we learn from one another, and how do we apply it, and so that we can walk in together hand in hand and make these the legislators. Who don't know? Let me tell you something. Legislators don't know anything. I'm talking about from state senators to state reps to to mayors. Yeah, they know that part, but they don't know anything about the industry. They so still say gateway drug. Yeah. So it's in my best interest to walk in is a steeper stop. Scott. Scott. Scott yeah. So it's in my best interest as minorities from medical marijuana to go and say, Scott, what are you, where are you trying to go to next? What state do you want to go into? Okay, Scott, you believe in this? I believe in this too. Let's walk in hand in hand together. Because mm-hmm. they, they're going to look at Scott differently and then they're going to go, and Scott's going to be like, whatever she wants, we want too. And you change people's perception of what we're trying to get accomplished. So, really quickly, that's fantastic, by the way. Because we're the last they haven't come to kick me out yet, but I do want to say this is such an important. <laughs> I, um, I wanted to do this really quickly because it's, it's connected. Kamani, talk a little bit about uh, what's going on with Cannabis Cultural Association because here, um, you know, there's the health and wellness impact, and you know, we kind of again we're skating over some really deep, deep things that we should be discussing. But this is you have you guys have an outstanding lawsuit right now. That is actually almost like the who walks in a room together. Like it's just a random. It feels random, but then of course, if I'm in the industry, I know it's not. Yeah. But from the outside looking in, it looks like a, just a great group of different types of folks working together to say, "Hey, we deserve a better lot than what y'all gave us." Talk yeah. a little bit more about that. So I, I can't talk too much about the lawsuit itself. Yeah. Um, but we are uh, one of the plaintiffs suing uh, Jeff Sessions and the Justice Department um, deeming cannabis it should not be a Schedule One drug. It's unconstitutional. And we brought uh, other diverse plaintiffs just through this, through networking, a lot of different events, um, the social media aspect of this. We have a, um, a patient, uh, a child patient in Texas who, who they're called refugees. A lot of people have left their hometown to go to Colorado to get medical cannabis. And she's one of those patients. Um, and she has been a whole 360 of, of her ailment. We have a vet as well. The vets, the, the, their aspect of the story is very important. And then we also have um, the Cannabis Culture Association. And we believe it's this law. Oh, and Marvin Washington, of course, um, with the athlete and the CTE with the NFL, and how you know CBD and overall um, plant treatment can really benefit a lot of our athletes who are predominantly people of color as well. Um, and we essentially are coming together, and we did the same thing. We came hand in hand and said we believe this should not be a Schedule One drug because it can help us in the following ways. And based on some of the rhetoric we've seen in history, the only reason why this became a Schedule One drug um, is because of some of the racial undertones from Harry J. Inslinger um, to Richard Nixon and the hippies and blacks. Um, to, to even now, if you look at the data in New York City where I'm from, you know, Mayor de Blasio ran a campaign saying we should stop with these discriminatory arrests. If you still look at the arrests in New York City, 90% of, of cannabis arrests in New York City are black and brown people. 
people, despite you know the ratio of those people are not the same. So we still see that racial bias um, from that Jay Z video. So bringing all this together, like we said, we all knew, hey, we'll make a stronger case if we sue Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump and and the overall federal government together as a collective, not just saying no, it's about race or it's about sports, it's, it's about all that stuff. Mm -hmm. We we have to work together. So between that, we also got that Cory Booker Act, which is going to is going to be big. Um, but you know, it, it, one thing I've noticed is it is politics, and some of these politicians, black ones included, um, can be using this cannabis thing for their own interests as well. So we just have to be weary as people, as consumers, as patients, um, who we who we decide to become hand in hand with. And at the same time, a lot of the legalization effort has been led by the narrative of ending the war on drugs. So it's it's used the narrative of the war on drugs to you know, legalize, but at the same time, you know, the, the people that own the companies, the people that are making money from it, they get to benefit from the legalization. They get, you know, if this becomes real, the deschedulization, they get access to insurance, they get access to banks. Yeah. But we have to ask, like, if this narrative helped your business legalize, what is your business doing to give back to this narrative? Because it's not enough to talk the talk. We have to have them walk the walk. And also just realize that all of you, including us, everybody, none of us, we will never, ever, ever be at the end of prohibition on cannabis in our lifetimes again. And this being a critical time in time, it is important that however, first of all, to strengthen numbers. And so when you look at organizations like Minority for Medical Marijuana, CCA, the Cannabis Commission, the New Jersey Cannabis Commission, we, this is why we all know each other. This is how we all get around and see each other. Me and Scott see each other all the time. Well, we, you know, yeah. or yeah, it's assumed, we're to the point now where we assume we're gonna run into each other. And that's the thing, because we're constantly and figuring out what's the best way to effectively communicate to those who don't see this like we see it or are aware of it. And to be honest with you, some of the hardest people to crack is our own. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I, I had a, I had a, I had an incident. No Sonia did a, a, a CCA event, and it was uh, all Latinos, all in, in his, it was all Hispanic, right? And all in Spanish. Right? No, and Spanish. all in Spanish. Yes, it was all in Spanish. I didn't speak Spanish. I had someone, I, 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 I had someone translate, and then halfway through my little speech, and I was like, everybody understand? And the people looked and said, yeah. He sat down, so I just went ahead and went, I went with it. But it turned, and it was, it was great, you know, it was awesome. And I want, because my point was, was to, to, let the, to let the Latinx community know that this is so important that I even, that even a black man has to come and talk to y'all to tell y'all what's going on, because this is not, we're just going to go right over our heads. We don't have time. We don't have time for egos. We don't have time. The message is too, the mission is too important. It's too critical, yes. Well, 
on that note, I definitely know we've gone over, but I appreciate the hearty conversation. Federal legalization, I just wrote about it. Uh, three uh, things that you must do uh, to get ready. You can find it on entrepreneur.com. And on the weekend.com, I'm about to post why I'm given the sideline of federal legalization. And part of that has to do with, I don't feel like we're ready as an industry. We just talked about that. Um, and That's how I think. I think now, state by state by state, you have to make that get in, effort. Get in, you get in now while you can yeah. in your various states, set some, some laws, set some, some policy. Um, it's gonna take a minute and try to get some businesses in here and get some, and start to create some revenue and yeah. that for and workforce and economic development because when it becomes federally prohibition is lifted, there is gonna be a changing of the it's a change. It's gonna be there, very there's, sad. A, there's a
that if there are those verified educational components that give you a little leg up, so on your resume, instead of not just having you went to Princeton and blah, 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 but now you have a certification where you took this class, this class, this class, and you're a member of Minorities for Medical Marijuana, and this is what you're are, then that it takes you from being just kind of like, oh, okay, to a whole nother level. I would so, also add that just in general, the industry is so like, in the baby, 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 like just got born stages. Like the umbilical cord has not been cut. And truth of the matter is you could actually get a job just on the strength of the fact that you bring professionalism and right. agree to the industry. Right. Don't yeah. get me started. Okay. <laughs> like we, I think in general, we do need, we have more corporate to cannabis crossovers and we do need like any other industry that contingent of fresh, out of college, yeah. ready to work, ready yeah. to learn, yeah. out of the gate. Yeah. And that's our responsibility is to help you get you connected. That's mm -hmm. professionals across the board. Four days ago, I got a phone call, and I'm thank you for your question because it does highlight something that I have to check with myself and how I'm speaking because a lot of people, when they hear me speak, they think that I'm only talking to just business owners. I want everybody to be a business owner, but it doesn't. If you find yourself coming around often to my podcast and want to support our humble little project, there are quite a few ways you can do so. Supporting us helps us keep the lights on, pay rent, pay for hosting, equipment, and travel. You can do this by going to https colon slash slash anchor dot fm slash I am Canvas Sativa podcast slash support. You can also support me now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash IC Sativa podcast. You can support the podcast for as little as $1 a month. We also have a $5 and above tier if you are feeling extra generous. Additionally, if you wish to get in contact with us, you can leave a voice message on Anchor and you can do this by going to https colon slash slash anchor dot fm slash i am canvas sativa podcast and click the send voice message button and i may just play it on a future episode you can also call and leave a voice message at 617-466-9389 and i may just play it on a future episode feel free to join the ever-expanding i am canvas sativa podcast planet on discord we've yes we've got a discord channel and that Discord channel can be found at https colon slash slash discord dot gg greg greg slash six five t g two n r. Again, that is https colon slash slash discord dot gg slash six five t g two n r. Feel free to check out Sequoia Organics for a great source of CBD and hemp-based products. You can check them out by the link https colon slash bit ly slash 33fkrv9. And you can enter the following coupon codes for extra discounts such as dog treat 20, tincture 20, 40, percent sign off ISO, 15% sign off CBD. And that applies to the entire store. And if you're in Northeast New England and you're in Eastern Massachusetts, especially, or, or um, Southern New Hampshire or Southern Maine, then you can get some great and inexpensive CBD flour delivered directly to your door very quickly. And you can do this by going to https colon slash slash shop 
www.bostonhempire.com slash question mark ref equals d scotland and as always everyone stay medicated my friends peace out and ciao legalization and then that equity piece they're talking about like how we actually it, how do we actually have the best uh, how do we actually see diversity there um and so just to kick things off and talk a little bit about the education i'm going to go to sonia um because as a co-founder for the massachusetts rec um consumer uh, uh council this is really your focus so um, one of the things that as I was doing research for uh, the panel, I've been noticing that even in the legalized or decriminalized states, people of color are still being targeted, still getting arrested for marijuana possession, and it's leading to just further bias. So I could say all day, I'm in the legal cannabis industry, and I'll get really quickly, because all my followers, like somebody posts something about, well, really? Because this just happened, or so-and-so just got picked up. Tell us a little bit more about some of these external biases that are happening and what type of education or I guess the mission of MRCC and the education that you guys are looking to try to do presently and in the future. Yeah, so right now what I see a lot in Massachusetts is a lot of the illicit market is not willing to come into the legal market and participate because they're just so used to being part of the illicit market. And there's just such a disconnect from the government and you know, like in Massachusetts specifically, there's the Cannabis Control Commission, which is composed of five people. Um, and they are hosting public hearings this month to take public input, um, but not very many people are willing to come out and, and talk to the Cannabis Control Commission because they see it, they see them as like the feds. Um, and, and so this is, we recently went to an event uh, where it was more, it was not like a, cause you're, you can legally gift, but at this event people were just, you know, like straight up like trading and selling. Um, and I wanted to encourage these people to actually, like these are the people that need to go to the Cannabis Control Commission so that they can tell them these are the laws that I want so that I can participate in this market. Um, but I, I remember one of the guys telling me, um, and, and this was this was a, a white vet, and he said, oh, I don't want to do that. I'm a vet. Like, I don't want to go to jail. I provide this medicine for people, and I don't want, like, I'm doing this just fine. So, you know, if a white vet is saying that, then you can already imagine what a person of color is, is thinking. Like, I don't want to be associated with what is this legal practice? It doesn't. It just doesn't exist. Um, and so it, it doesn't also help that you know the Cannabis Control Commission only has one person of color in, on on that board. And if the language from Massachusetts, Massachusetts, which luckily says um, this system will help those that have been most impacted by the war on drugs, but yet there's only one person of color on the Cannabis Control Commission, and even that person of color has experienced a sort of privilege that has only, uh, you know, they've only experienced the war on drugs vicariously. Um, how far can we really get? How, how open can these legislations really be for people that are participating in the illicit market so that they can transfer into the, to the legal market? And so what we find is that instead, a lot of outside people from different states are, you know, already have the knowledge, are willing to come in, work five times faster because they see it, they see the possibility. So there's just, like the competition is just not there. There is no competition. People don't see, 
don't see themselves as competing with the global market. And so part of what we've um, done as a Massachusetts Recreational Consumer Council is we've created the, these little, this is the first educational campaign in Massachusetts. So we took advantage of Massachusetts waiting so long um, and also having to wait for recreational sales tax to actually come out with any sort of education uh, for their consumers. But we knew that this was important because consumers already exist. People are already consuming. People are already trying to participate in the legal market. So this little booklet basically just lets people know how much can I possess in public, so up to an ounce, how much can I possess at home, 10 ounces plus any of your homegrown, that's a lot. A lot of people don't know that, but it's legal. And this is also not just important for us to know, but also for law enforcement to know. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the times, like, it's a trickle-down effect. And by the time that law enforcement understands that, you know, this is legal, it's too late. They will lock all of Yeah. <laughs> so it's important for us to have tools like this that you know we can. We have to familiarize ourselves with the law so that we can participate and understand like how can I be part of this system. So this is this is one of the tools that we hope to create for people so that not only they would understand like the crucial good to knows of the law, but also they would familiarize themselves with the legal business thing. So there's establishments, there's marijuana retailers, and most importantly right now, something that we're really focusing on is craft cannabis, because there's oh, craft cannabis co-ops. So I saw a machine out there, it's an extraction machine, it costs $84,000. This may not be accessible by one individual, but if a, if a group of individuals pool money together, that's possible right there. And so these are the type of, you know, kind of avenues that I want people to see, like, this is possible. This is something that we can do. We just have to see it. Thank you. No, I agree. I think that the education, the two things I keep coming back to is limited traditional access. So it's not like you're in school. And not interest um, and or fear, fear just because you don't know. Um, I'm going to throw in some video because, you know, when we talk about diversity in cannabis, and generally in history, we focus on that war on drugs and the disproportionate incarceration of black and Hispanics. But sometimes we'll talk, it does feel like we're just talking to each other and talking to ourselves. And there's an element where we just feel like we're not bringing in other people, engaging and educating them about some of this, and it, you know, because they don't have firsthand experience. They may watch that Jay-Z video and it didn't resonate at all. It was just that was interesting stats as opposed to the hair standing up on the back of the neck, because like, that's where I grew up. I really wanted you to kind of share a little bit as a black man, as well as a military vet, how we continue to you know, expand the conversation to include other underrepresented minorities, like uh, vets, for example, which can be you know, obviously any color or of any group, and um, talk a little bit about your specific experience, of course, but then uh, some of the initiatives between that you're working on for the New Jersey Cannabis Commission. Okay, well, um, again, my name is Leo Bridgewater, and I'm one of the three veterans who testified in the Senate committee that had PTSD added to our state's medical marijuana program. And last September, Governor Christie signed our bill into law. Now, it's important you understand from what place I'm coming from and how I see things in order for you to understand why I say the things that I say and the way that I say it. Um, my last tour in Iraq as a soldier uh, was the NATO training mission in Iraq. And I worked, I was uh, the signal guy. My, my actual profession is uh, telecommunications. 
Uh, at that time, I worked for then Lieutenant General David Petraeus and Admiral Mike Mullins. Um, Dave Petraeus later became director of the CIA. Mike Mullins later became uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, and what I learned by being in these uh, high-level briefings with these men, because uh, I ended up having to give the J-6 brief, um, the biggest thing I learned was I was thankful for not being in the position that they were in to have to make the decisions that they had to make. Um, those were some scary decisions. Uh, I was also I also learned not to you know tell them yes when I knew the answer was no. You know, just hurry up and give them the answers because they want to make an informed decision. Um, and so when I, once I was done and I went through the Pentagon and then came home, I have a different way of looking at things. And so what I see is I see us, I, I, I see this, this war on, on drugs, but it's actually just being played out in my own town. And <clears throat> there's a disconnect in terms of uh, this opioid abuse and addiction epidemic and how it's played out in the veteran community and the general public thinks that PTSD is just a veteran thing. And it's, no, <laughs> um, it's not. But so I find myself in the strange role of educator. And there's only one way I know how to educate, which is to go in brief mode. So when I'm talking and I'm giving these, 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 these speeches and stuff like that, truth be told, I really am in brief mode. You know, so my message doesn't change because of who's in front of me. It's the same thing. I'm just giving you what you need to know so you can make an informed decision. And based on my analysis and the things that I see, we are not empowered. Well, why are we not empowered? Well, historically, black and brown people and women are the most underrepresented demographic within the industry. How is that possible? Well, we're not allowed to get into the industry. Now, you'll lock us up and then do the 180 and then make money off of it, but you won't even give us the chance to get into it. And if you do, you're gonna set up obstacles to make it even harder. You know, so now we have to, what, what do we have? What tools do we have? Well, truth be told, your veterans are, your, are, are a wonderful tool. Because what I learned is, is that when I'm inside the state house, they talk to me different than they may talk to you. And to be honest with you, most New Jerseyans have a line that even they won't cross. And that line happens to stop at veterans. You know, it's just, oh, well, well, wait, wait, we don't do that here. That's how, that's how it works. You know, and so as a black man in America, I have to continue, constantly be aware of the optics, how something looks. It's, a, it's actually a survival skill set that I have to uh, pass down to my two sons at some point. Because my oldest is moving from the cute little kid to the scary black guy. And I am aware that when I'm in, when I'm in certain places, the first thing people think when they see me is big scary black guy. Then I start talking, and the last thing they hear, they think to hear is decorated combat vet. And so therefore, you know, but I get talked to different. So it's a wonderful tool. We can move mountains if we're deployed right. Just because I'm no longer in uniform, that doesn't mean that my service to my country has stopped. It's just evolved. And so in the state of New Jersey, we're one of two states who are having gubernatorial races this year. First races post Donald, post Donald Trump presidency. 
So regardless of what your political party or your political background is, you as a party, you will know how much work you have to do depending on what us in Virginia does this year. Now what's interesting is that it's a prelude to 2018 because in the rest of the country you have midterms, but in New Jersey, see we're getting ready to move towards adult use. And so what I've been doing is I've been in the community, in my community and other communities, like in Brooklyn, uh, informing people of what power you actually do have, the power of time. You know, because next next uh, spring in, in the state of New Jersey, I think over 90% of the municipalities will be picking new mayors and new city councils. You know, and that's, that's huge because I know you guys have been seeing the news where these senators and congressmen, they come home and have the town hall meetings and the people in here whooping and hollering and yelling at them, you got you don't represent me, you know what? Yeah, the time for it, and as a veteran, you know, I'm learning that my experience is teaching me that the general public is starting to trust the word of a veteran before a politician nowadays because it's been perverted. You know, we don't we don't respect our politicians like we used to, and they've given us reason to be that way. You know, when you look at things like with the healthcare stuff and everything, it's a thing of the herd. You know, um, and so what I find myself doing is I see this as a tool. Time, it being a funny time in time, and you just have you just need to know how to deal with us in our community because our community is kind of strange to the outside world. They don't understand how we, you know, how we are able to maneuver with one another. We come in different shades and colors, and we all know each other. (laughs) We all know each other. No, but then it's like, this is my community, and I'm trying to introduce my community to my home state. And they, don't, they, they can't figure it out. And that's great for now, because now we have to marshal our resources, marshal our people. It's time to mobilize, test the system. Hey, y'all, we about to vote next year. Let's do this. Vote this way, this way, this way, this way. We change everything overnight. That's literally, simplify it. That's literally how we've been doing it. And that's what we've been telling people. Just vote this way, this way, this way, and we change everything overnight. Well, that's a perfect segue to some of the policy stuff. Thank you so much. Um, we have a lot of uh, like, real issue. Once you get past, okay, now I'm educated. I don't learn about the end of the cannabis. And I'm not an issue. <laughs> and appropriately, uh, uh, figure my end of the system as I need to. And, uh, and now the policy is an issue. There are grandfather clauses, inconsistent enforcement, which we talked about, and then literally state by state, something different, right? We were talking to someone who came by our group, like, listen, I could drive from here to Rhode Island, and if I have any of my own stuff in my car, I broke the law. And, um, and, and that's sort of been some of this hindrance. I really want to talk, because we've been doing some good work, and we are, just to check the times, so we're going to have a relatively kind of really quick response, but I want to to hear from uh, Kamani and Sonia, um, because y'all are both real busy in Massachusetts, but talking about the important policy updates in Massachusetts. Um, we talked a little bit, but anything specifically that's impacting diversity that's coming up, that's slated, because I think Leo is right, like 2018 is about real serious. And so I just want to kind of understand that, and then we'll go to Roz, talk about some of what we've done to change what the language looks like. Yeah, so in July they had a compromise bill here in Massachusetts that essentially changed the local control. So 
it's going to go town by town how you zone and implement your adult use program. So if the town voted overwhelmingly on question four, which was our adult use ballot initiative back in November, then there has to be another local referendum to ban uh, dispensaries and other establishments. But if the town voted no, uh, the city council or the town selectmen or whoever runs the city or town can put an ordinance up and they can vote uh, until 2019. Um, and then in 2020, no matter how you voted, um, or how the town voted rather on question four, they have to do a referendum. Um, so there's been bans across the state from Milford to Methuen to Lawrence to, um, there's a vote in Amesbury, close to the North Shore. Towns, it's going literally town by town how they want to implement this new law. And that can affect diversity because if you can't start a business in your town, then how can you move forward with your business plan? We're going to be lucky here in Boston. Um, the mayor, who was against it, um, slowly uh, changed his tune. And I think A, it's because of money, they see the revenue, and B, uh, but he's running against uh, Tito Jackson, who was very much for it. And that's what this is, guys. This is political warfare. We are playing politics monopoly. Politics. I make a joke to my mother. I never cared about policy until they legalized weed. She loves that. She's like that. So now I'm all about it. I'm a registered lobbyist. I, I talk to legislators on both sides. I'm, I'm nonpartisan. I don't even care. I care about pot. I don't care about anything else. And I want to see this in our town. So this could affect diversity because. People don't even know that. They're like, what? This happened? When did this happen? And they might be behind because they don't even know. And their town, I just had to look up yesterday, Spencer Mass banned in May, but no one knows that. And we have a potential client who's going after it, but they don't even know that the town already banned it. So I'm like, great, we're already behind. But luckily, I'm thinking strategic, playing chess. And I'm like, okay, 2020, we're going to run grassroots campaigns across the whole state, and we're going to need consumer advocates across the state so they can run the campaign. So we, and like, like, said we gotta work together with the mobilized now. 2018 there's a governor race here in, in Massachusetts. Governor Baker still against this. He signed the new bill. He said I don't like this law and signed it. So we still have opposition. So we just gotta be on our A, a game from now until forever at this point. <laughs> and then you know I mean it just it taps into what you're saying. So recommendation like if you like we we're here talking about what you can do and activate um to be honest with you, um, we lobby in, in the state of Florida. I am not a lobbyist. I just had a passion and advocacy for my organization. And it started with me first finding out who wrote the bill. I, I, to be honest with you, lobbying at the local level, there is an opportunity for that. But what I try to do is I try to take it at the state level because if there's a state statute mandate law at the state level, it will set precedent and it will also help to, to carve out what happens at the local level. So if you have those, so, we ended up finding out who was the sponsor of the bill. And then, we, and to be honest with you, we knew that we were coming from a diversity standpoint, so we went to the Florida Black Caucus leaders, and they were so clueless on what was going on. When I say clueless, do not expect, just because cannabis is your passion, and, 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 and politics, so I'm saying high POT, not politics, politics is your focus or whatever, it's not on their radar. Yeah. So you have to really do a lot of education and you have to figure out where and, and learn a little bit about what they're doing. Bob Bradley was a sponsor on the Senate side. Well, I had to go in there and read about Bob Bradley and find out he was a veteran, he did this, he did this. His bill that he wrote 
lacked diversity whatsoever. It was very much, a, in Florida, it's a vertical system. So you do everything from sea to sail. You don't have like a dispensary license or um, a, um, a cultivating license. You get one license, you do everything from the top to the bottom. Well, imagine, that's nothing but a cartel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a cartel. So every state, so you guys, I'm, I'm meeting from Connecticut to Massachusetts to you know New Hampshire to New York or what have you, first, before you do anything else, go do your research and find out what your state laws at the state level says. Find out who the sponsor of that bill is at the state level. You don't have to be a lobbyist to walk yourself in there and go and, and go to a committee meeting and put your paper in and says, I want to give to the mic when, and I want to make a statement about what you know how I feel about this. My concern is Senate committee that we don't see any diversity and inclusion in this bill. We believe that minorities need to have an opportunity. I implore you, please, I would like to work with you or can we discuss how we can have minority participation. You don't have to be a part of an organization to do that. You can do it on your own. And that's why I say everyone has to become a, your lobbyist in your own mind or an advocate and start at that state level and look at that. And even if you take a day, if you find out all the information is open source, all you got to do is just go type in your, you know, um, Massachusetts government, find out who the committees are. It tells you every information, everything you want to write is great. It's, it's great. It's right there. But you just have to take some time and do the research. But to, long story short, we were able to actually, I wrote legislation for the state of Florida. I wrote it, got it passed, and the state of Florida has, um, has, um, has a diversity requirement for every license holder in the state of Florida that had currently had a license. So the ones that currently had one that, that were getting grandfathered in had to go back and create a diversity plan, and the new ones. Mind you, not everyone that wants to be in the industry is going to touch plans. The opportunity is economic development because there's ancillary services. Yeah. I have a member of our organization. He's a construction firm. You know why? You know what? He's happy now. He became a member because now every every license holder has can do 25 dispensaries under the Florida license. So that means that you can go to a retail space and you got to build that space out. You know what? I got a phone call from a license holder that says, "Hey, Roz, we're looking for some GCs. Do you have any members who want to bid on the contract?" They know they got to report back to the state of Florida every year how many diversity um, businesses they're, they're doing supplier diversity with. And so now they have no excuse to be like, well, we can't find it. <laughs> right. I'm just being honest with you. This is what happens. Well, we didn't know. We couldn't find it. So that's why Minorities for Medical Marijuana, that's why Cannabis Cultural Association, that's why these organizations are forming and having connectivity, liaisons, members, whatever you want to call it, because we want to feed, I call it feed the flow. I, I got the legislation, now I'm going to feed it, and so that we can put people on and get them to where they need to be to get connected with those license holders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, just wanted to, yeah, too, I just wanted to say that like in New Jersey, one of the things that we had to make sure we were aware of, to us, there's like opt-in and opt-out clauses for, for, for uh, municipalities. And because our experience, my experience has been like I talked to the mayor of Trenton, he had no idea what S3195 was and that, where it was going on. And I mean, he was truly clueless. And that's scary for people in our industry because without the general public, without knowing, their, their, their municipality could have opt out of it. And the thing is, in Jersey, if you opt out, you can't opt back in for a couple of years. So it's really like, it's really critical that you are, you are well aware of how things go, how things work, and what they're moving towards.
I was saying this in the interest of time. We, I, I want to keep having this conversation, so this is not the last time we'll see this slide. But I think that after we've done the work on the policy, what Rob says about feeding that equity yes. is key because we, we still aren't seeing the ownership. Um, I want to shout out to DJ Adams in the audience who is an expert in investment and is an investor herself. This is the issue we have. I feel like we have limited access in general to just financing, period. That has always been a predominantly white male run uh, situation. And um, well, I re recognize that from day one in MBA, uh, you know, full-time MBA program. You know, like, oh, this like, nobody else with Afro. But, um, <laughs> Still is good. 